Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow and I'm joined by my best man, Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Wayne Grow? Oh, excited to be here. Come on, man. Look, man, I had to get it on. He was making a move. I had to get it on. <laughs> heat. Michael Mann. Woo! Why heat? Why are we doing a deep dive episode on Michael Mann's masterpiece, his definitive film, his magnum opus? Many consider it his best. We'll get to that later. This is a hugely important two-hour, 50-minute crime saga that paired Pacino and De Niro on screen for the first time together. They were in The Godfather Part 2 together, but they didn't share any screen time. That's how this movie was marketed. It's coming out at the end of 1995, December. These two on screen together. It's Michael Mann, dead series director, crime in Los Angeles. Everyone's excited for it. We'll talk a little bit about that, but first, just like, what's your relationship with this movie? In 95, if you had one, versus 2022, I've been obsessed with this. I think I saw it in 96. I remember it had, it had a uh, double VHS cassette, so I watched this one a lot uh, entirely too young, but <laughs> I love this movie. I'm so glad we decided to do a specific deep dive on it, but yeah, tell me about Heat. I think I saw Heat. I, I can't place when it was, but I was definitely a kid. Because I, almost all of my Michael Mann movies were absorbed when I was younger. Yeah. And I hadn't got a chance to really go back and rewatch it. Or if I did, it wasn't the right way. It wasn't the right way. It was like on TV. Right. I would right. catch because it's, it's so long. You'd catch like snippets. And of it, it used to play on TV all the time. All I mean, it would time. be like four hours and all, a lot of the best parts were cut out or edited. But yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. It used to play constantly. Yep. So that was more my experience with it. So the amount of times that I've actually started it. Yeah. And seen it all the way through, maybe just like twice before we did this. Oh, wow. So, and it, it, it just like when, if you really take the time to watch this thing, it's just a masterpiece. Yeah. And there's a reason that, you know, the rewatchables is one, if not the most famous movie podcast, they've covered this movie three times. And there's a reason for that, because if you watch it once, I don't know too many people who have watched this movie just one time and been like, and eh, you know, that was okay. Like I never hear someone say, ah, oh, it was just too long. Like everyone likes it. It's a really well-made movie, even on a surface level. But then when you go under with rewatches, you investigate a little bit, you see how much of this is actually like based on fact that Michael Mann spent decades crafting the story based on real people. And then you listen to like all that quote unquote, like side dialogue that they're talking about, like all the surveillance, everything is accounted for. Yeah. Like everything in the movie adds up. It tracks. There are some things that like, you know, I, I love this movie. So do you. I don't think we're going to harp too much on like things that don't work about it, but Michael Mann with L.A. traffic. Yes. Like he doesn't really have a good you know, concept of it. He, <laughs> I didn't even think about yeah, that. It, it, he very like collateral is probably the big, biggest example like they're getting from. He's like, yeah, I'll take you from LAX to downtown in seven minutes. And I'm like, what do you have like a hoverboard or like yeah. a spaceship? Like what are you talking <laughs> yeah. about? Can't do that. So that's stuff that I'm just like willing to forgive. But there's so much layered into this. I mean, we're going to get into all this. But like the first I remember the first time watching this and they're cutting to this guy like cooking in a diner. This like con. Or, you know, that he's recently paroled, paroled. And I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, why do we keep, why is he showing us this story? And then it, boy, does it ever pay off? Like, you cool? Yeah, man, I'm cool. Like, that, the Dennis Haysbert plotline, I remember tracking that as a kid being like, this director is smarter than I am. Because mm -hmm. he's teasing something to me that I think is going to, like, come up later. I don't know why, but I know that I have to follow him. And that, that's just one example. But the whole movie is embedded with this stuff, like, there's a lot that any normal movie watcher is going to miss 
the first time you watch it. So going back and back and back, there's so much cool shit to watch. Like you're going to get at the armor car robbery or you're going to get at the diner scene or you're going to get the bank robbery. And any, you know, those are only like 20 minutes apart. And then when you sit down and actually pay attention to the rest, it's like, fuck, man, this is really well thought out. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it, it doesn't ever feel like it's too complicated. No, it never feels like even if you've never seen it. I mean, you do need to sit down and pay attention. It's not a phone movie. You yeah, gotta like exactly. sit down and de- if you want to fully enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. But there is nothing that's being presented that's going to be like when you're done watching it, being like, you know, I didn't really get this or it. It, it all tracks and it all feels very, very digestible, and you feel so satisfied. But when you do go back and rewatch it, then you're like. There's so many layers to everything. Yeah, and you're like, damn, I missed that. Like, oh, I didn't catch that. Like, for that's the sign of such a good filmmaker that he establishes this world and he's so confident to like, I'm just gonna put all this stuff in it. And if you want to investigate it, everything I'm putting in this, pretty much everything matters. Like all of it, all the dialogue that the cops are talking, even if they're not on camera. Like I when they're when they have to abort that mission, when like Mm -hmm. Kilmer's in there, he's like, We walk, and he goes, I'm there. Like, that was always a hard scene for me to decipher. Like, what are they doing here? And that's just a separate robbery from the bank stuff. That's separate from everything that that they just had to walk away from because they felt the heat around the corner. That was like when I'm listening to what the cops are saying, like in the background, we're watching that security footage. And so for this watch, because we were recording, I really wanted to pay attention to that stuff. And it all tracks like listening to when they're coming out, when the cops are coming out of the restaurant. Sorry, when the criminals are coming out of the restaurant. And the cops are staring at them like from the, you know, the building. And they're talking about all the surveillance they have on them. I never really paid attention to that. And I'm like, oh, you guys really are like following them. And then, you know, like 30 minutes later when they like they dumped all of our surveillance. That's when if you're listening to that, you're like, oh, these guys knew they were being like tracked. They yeah. knew they were being monitored. And then they went, you know, had coffee. I had coffee with Macaulay half hour ago. And clearly it's like after that coffee break, they're all like, all right, dump the surveillance now. And we don't see any of that. But. It's just brilliant. That's all I'm saying. Like he could show there's so many things he could show us that is just said in dialogue. And oh, it just that's what makes it going back to it so fun for me over and over and over. And I'm talking about like the down, 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 these like crazy small minute details. We're gonna get to the bigger stuff, trust me. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. the, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna get to it. I wanted to do this a little differently because you know, I've we haven't even started talking about what the fucking movie's about. I guess I could get into that. Most people know. But I really wanted to start out because it's such a short conversation. Like he, Michael Mann has prestige. Chino has prestige. De Niro is a big deal when this movie's coming out. They make it for 60 million. It ends up making like 187 million. That's not bad. But what it doesn't get is a single Oscar nomination, which is completely and utterly baffling that this movie came out on December 15th, 1995. I listened to Michael Mann in a few interviews and he said, he said he tried to not hold a lot of stock into it, but that Pacino was actually like really upset, not for himself, just like, for where's, the where's the screenwriting? Where's like the editing, the sound mixing, the sound editing? Like, this is one of the best sounding movies I've ever heard just for the bank robbery scene alone. And Michael Mann's like, I think people viewed it more as like a genre picture and they didn't want to kind of take it seriously. And I heard him say that and I was like, I guess that's a good point. I don't really agree. Maybe that was true in 95, but seven by David Fincher is absolutely a genre movie. Yes. Absolutely. And that got nominated for best film editing. So like, what are we talking? Basic yeah. Instinct came out two years earlier. That got two Oscar nominations. So that's something I've never understood. I don't have context for it. I don't really know why that happened. Michael Mann doesn't know. Al Pacino doesn't know. 
So I just wanted to throw that out there first to be like, all by way of saying, this movie was received well at the time. It was. But now it has developed this life that like, if someone has seen the movie, I think you're very hard to find someone who doesn't like it. And, Do they exist? Right, exactly. And most, a lot of people have seen this. Not even like hardcore movie fans necessarily. But yeah, I, I just think that's so fascinating to me. Probably in the 90s, one of the biggest Oscar holes, if not the biggest Oscar hole of the 90, of the 90s. You know, like Zodiac in the first decade of the 2000s. That's crazy that that didn't get nominated. But he, I don't, that has to be like the number one or number two biggest Oscar omission gaffe you know of that decade you told me that recently before we started this pod and i i i i think that might be my biggest oscar faux pas flub up like how does this movie not get anything i remember i started watching the oscars every ceremony live in 97 so like the titanic year but i would stay up as late as i could and like track them the next day and look at all the winners and I remember like in 97, because I was in love with Heat at that point, you know, I, like I said, owned the VHS watching a lot. I remember being like, what? No, nothing? No Oscar nominations two years ago. That's okay. Okay. I mean, I, but I also think this plays into uh, Michael Mann's next movie, The Insider, which gets like seven Oscar nominations. I think they're trying to save face a little bit for that. And we see that happen a lot. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I think Tarantino should have won his second screenplay Oscar for Inglorious Bastards, but they didn't do that. And then, you know, he wins for Django. So we see that a lot. Like yeah. we see the trying to save face. I don't know. Just wanted to throw that out there up top because it's really baffling. It's <laughs> that's, super that's baffling. No, I don't really have anything else to say. It, it's just, it's absurd. It's it really abs- is. And especially because it came out in December. Yeah, right before the year ends, right? Oscar nomination time. Yeah, like that is, though, that's your, that's your movie. Now, maybe because seven was already kind of getting in that spot they didn't want to have two of the same could that possibly be why they i don't fuck i think that 1995 oscars were stuck in like still kind of old man syndrome of like you know they wanted the the big epics like braveheart wins that year sense and sensibility's big winner apollo 13 but he is more in line with that than seven is well yeah but i mean seven did only get one nomination yeah that's that's what i'm saying it's in seven i we love seven that's a great edited movie i'm just i just brought that up by way of saying that like the oscars were not universally rejecting genre movies yeah they were allowing some in they rarely awarded them but it just yeah it's utterly baffling heat zero nominations does not age well <laughs> god does it not should i tell talk about what the movie's about for like the two people listening to this who haven't seen it oh man <laughs> get ready remember. get yeah. ready no this is this one's easy so you have a lifelong cop veteran cop vincent Hanna, played by al pacino and a lifelong criminal neil mccauley played by robert de niro and they are both at the top of their games they're in la they're not hunting each other but vince vincent is trying to track neil and his crew and they don't really know like who's responsible for what and then the genius of it is once they both figure out that they're onto each other it still keeps going and they still keep pushing their confidence tempting that fate to the point where they are sitting down in a diner having coffee having a conversation basically it's in like one of the most famous movie scenes ever in american cinema saying like i you know I actually do respect you and I get why you do what you do. I don't agree with it, but I get it. And it's kind of nice that we're meeting here. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely have this respect for you, but still going to blow your fucking brains out if it comes to it. Yeah, you know, let's be straight about that. But there is like they're kind of the same person a little bit. They they're, are. Not, they're not too many degrees away from each other. It's no. like there's no way Vincent Hanna as a, like a kid, a teen growing up in Chicago, I think was part of his backstory that Michael Mann 
created, like, he definitely would have gotten into trouble a little bit, you know, just being a kid running around doing shit. And what's the, you know, something could have happened where he got sent to Folsom for a little bit and that derails his life. And maybe Neil McCauley's like, ah, fuck it, I'll become a cop. I, you know, they, that's one of the things that works so well for their dichotomy is that they're not like, they're not that different. And I just, I mean, that's essentially what the movie's about. You're following Pacino's story and seeing how tracking Neil McCauley is basically like ruining his life. You see Neil McCauley, his story, how he's running around with his crew and how him being tracked by Vincent Hanna, it's kind of ruining his career. And that's the movie, two hours and 50 minutes of it. You're watching two guys who have decided that they are going to live their lives a very certain way. And it's an extreme life. The, the, there is no room for relationships. There is right. no room for anything that will take you away from what you have decided to do. Yeah. And I think that's very attractive to me. Like, even though, like, it certainly does not do well for them. No. It doesn't serve them, mm-mm. but they're addicted. They, they, they cannot not do what they do, and they love it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, man. I think there's something really cool about watching two character any character but two that operate on that level yeah and 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 that's what we get with this movie yeah they're totally like career obsessed and polar opposite professions to the point where it is a detriment to everything else i mean there's a lot of scenes with pacino and diane venora who plays his wife yeah. in it, just talking about you know when we got together baby you had to share me and she's really trying to just get through like can you not open up to me like can you not share can we not talk and you know i have to demean myself with a ralph like we get that a lot. It And even John Voight has that great line, like three marriages. What do you think that means? He's, yeah. he's at home every night. Like, no, he's out here chasing criminals, being a complete nut job, trying to find people like you and take yep. down people like you. And then Neil's the same way where he's a really fascinating thing about Neil McCauley, as played perfectly by De Niro, is that he's always he's this guy of like this prison moral philosophy ethics code, yeah. like heat around the corner, bail, 30 seconds flat. But he's contradicting himself yes, he all is. the time. He's breaking his own rules to his detriment, to his ultimate demise mm-hmm. all the time, constantly. And that's what's fascinating about him is because he has this very like stoic, like he's very together, put together, but you're not perfect. Every heist we see in this movie, everything is botched in one way or another. Not because of him, but like Wayne Grow kills yep. the guards in the beginning. They have to abort that second thing. The when they're trying to buy, you know, sell the bearer bonds back, that gets a little messed up because they're trying to get killed. And then obviously the bank robbery is botched in some way. So while these are very expert, good criminals who know their way around um, automatic weapons, who know their way how to handle crowd control, they are not perfect criminals, maybe because they break their own codes. And it's also really great to be able to watch um, the girl enter into his life. Yes, because when she does. I mean, who knows? Like, what's so great is you get to wonder about his life. And Mm -hmm. has there ever been a woman that has come into his life that's taken him away? I'm sure there probably was. And then he vowed, like, this was my imagination. But that's how great that De Niro's performance is, because it allows you to kind of think about it like this, is like, he probably had one experience that probably got too close and he goes, nope, this is why. Maybe it botched a, a, a job. Yeah, maybe it's the reason he went to prison. And maybe or it's the reason he went to yeah. prison. Yeah. But now that this one comes in, the way that we see that and like he, he really, he goes all in with her. And this is what you're latching onto is probably often regarded as the biggest criticism of the movie that it happened so quickly. And I'm like, I hear I did, that. Yeah. But a dude who's been in prison for a long time and maybe, maybe to your point, has never really experienced love or been accepted by 
anyone, let alone like, a you know, a woman who seems to understand him, even though he's, of course, lying because he's not, you know, a book about metals. He's not a metal salesman. <laughs> but yes, he's opening his heart up in a way that I think is new for him almost. And he's kind of like, ah, shit. And even that compulsion to be like, no, come here with me. Like they haven't known each other that long, but like, just leave the country with me. I do believe him. I yeah. believe Neil McCauley in that. I believe that he's like, I'm out. I'm setting this up to get out. So like, I never knew this would be a possibility that I would want a woman to come with me, but come on, what do you say? Let's take a shot. Let's take a jump. And there's a filmmaking device that's used in the edit that I think disproves the criticism of that it happens too fast because mm -hmm. I picked up on it and I thought it was excellent is because, you know, Michael Mann is very, very specific about when he chooses to cut. Mm -hmm. And there's a phone call scene that towards the beginning of this, like, opening relationship that they're forming together where they're on the phone with each other and they're all these really quick cuts between the two of them and to me that felt like this is the excitement right of this relationship like yeah. whatever they're gonna say next is like i have to see i have to know like is I'm that the call when they're all at dinner and he's i think he's looking around and everyone yes. else in his crew has a lady tom yep. sizemore yeah. is happily yep. married you know uh, ashley judd and val kilmer are a little rocky but they're together trejo's got his lady so i think he's looking around like damn maybe maybe i am missing something maybe i am missing yep. something maybe this code of mine has been too rigid you know and what's so great is that when he's seeing all of that like the way that we're watching him we don't see in the he's not going to let the public in that moment him read him read yeah. him yeah so he is smiling yeah making jokes making jokes yeah. But and you and I think we as the audience gather, I wonder if he's missing. Right. You know, he doesn't seem like it right here, but then he goes right to the phone. Exactly. And then does it. And I was like, oh, man, it's so good. And so I, I really love that because I just took notice of how fast these cuts were. And I was like, well, these are not just because we're just trying to cut. No. Like this no. is purposeful. This is intentional. This is all designed to make you feel something and i think by way of that that is just a filmmaking technique to show that this relationship is moving fast mm -hmm. for him maybe for her maybe but i mean she there's enough of her backstory in there you know she's kind of like a duck out of water like she's from appalachia and she's like in this bookstore and trying to do this freelance graphic design stuff like i don't know you know she says she's lonely and he's yeah. like i'm alone but i am not lonely i think they're too lonely la's of town filled with lonely yep. people out in the open and you know if two lonely people find each other and there's this weird granite weird but like definite connection i don't know you can kind of jump on it and i believe it i believe, I, it. I believe it too and it, it says a lot about her too to stay with it for yes. the way that she yes. does is like how far will loneliness take you mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. like clearly there's writing on the walls things shit has hit the fan in a right. weird way that she became aware of mm -hmm. and yet i mean he kind of forces her a little bit to stay but she ultimately still stays yeah he's not like you have to come with me or else yeah he, there is there are choices presented but yeah what does that say about her that she yeah. doesn't decide to be like yeah, I'm just going to go back to my place, dude. Like, yeah, I'm done like, you know like, what? I think this is a little week. too hot yeah, for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. Too much heat around the corner. When I said Michael Mann had been thinking about this for decades, I was not lying because he wrote this. He wrote a draft of this, the first draft in like 1979 based on real people. I think most of them were based in Chicago. There's something like, let me get this right. I'm sorry if I get this wrong. The real Neil McCauley, the cop who, you know, Pacino's based on who ended up taking him down, that cop. His partner in real life was Dennis Farina, the actor, you know, who, oh. who I've always loved. But he started, you yeah. know, he was a cop first before he became an actor. And he was huge in Michael Mann's films starting back at Thief. I love, love, love Dennis Farina. So I just think that's a cool bit of trivia. And then 
So he has all these stories and he's hearing from cops, from criminals, and he turns this into a TV movie called L.A. Takedown. There's actually some of the same cast. They don't play the same roles, but it's not really that good. He needed more money. I think that came out like 1989. I've seen it. It's the genesis for Heat is in there, but you know, it has a TV movie budget. Yeah. And then he's still, you know, he's still making movies. He makes Mohicans, but he is so like into this material that he gets the money to make this huge epic in 1995, calls it Heat. And this is really like the definitive text of this story, something that he kept going back to, going back to, tried to make material off it. I mean, obviously, he this is an obsessive director willing to do pretty much anything to get his vision, get his vision on the screen, no matter how many years it takes. But just by way of saying, I really respect that. Yeah, you know, respect. I really respect that drive and not letting it go. I know that some actors and some people, you know, Michael Mann's a very specific director. He's a very specific person. He requires a lot of his cast and crew but when we're just sitting here watching the films like it really pays off like i understand to make them must be tremendously difficult but wow 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 dude not all of them i'm not a fan of i'm not a diehard fan of every single michael mann movie but most of them and certainly this one oh this is i think this is i mean this is just a it's one of those note perfect movies yeah like yeah it it, and it's you want to do top five michael mann now Want to get it out of the way? Wherever you want, Hoss. Yeah, well, you know, I'm trying to do, I'm trying to mix things up, do things a little out of order. Okay, I just want listeners to, like, understand our relationship with Michael Mann. Some diehard manheads here might be a little mad at me because there are a few omissions. But just to, like, kind of, you know, as we're getting into Heat more and everything, wanted to talk about the place that Heat stands with us among his filmography. Number five for him, I put Collateral right there. I love that movie. I think everyone in it is great. I think Tom Cruise, uh, he's really on a different register, and I love him. Number four, man's most mature film, The Insider. Again, mm-hmm. I think he had some clout from Heat. I think, you know, Heat's such this big action epic, and then he's like, all right, I'll go make, like, the dramatic, dead serious movie, the Oscar movie, and I'll get some nominations just to prove to all you assholes that I can do that. So he does it, and that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, probably his most... Uh, controversial and maybe polarizing movie Miami Vice I absolutely love Miami Vice I know you do oh god I love it so much number two I'm a little mad at someone involved in this movie right now but it's Ali because I think that movie I I love Muhammad Ali in real life the actor playing him does give a very good performance in the movie he's that's just what it is (laughs) you know we live in a post slap world and you know I, I don't know it'll be I wonder when I'll rewatch that movie, but I've always loved Ali's. And, you know, number one is obviously Black Hat. That's like <laughs> the best Michael Mann movie that he's ever done. There's nothing better. Chris Hemsworth steals the show. And did I miss anything? No, number one is Heat. And I guess my big Jesus, I got you there. Oh, but, oh, oh, that was so good. But the biggest omission, I think, from mine is Nick. He's still going. Is Mohicans, which I don't want to take anything away from Mohicans or Manhunter or Thief. I love Michael Mann. I love his films, Public Enemies, all good. But if I'm really crunching it and laying in those top five, that's how I'd rank them. But yes, Heat is, I think, the best Michael Mann film. That's so great because our top five are vastly different. Mm -hmm. Give it to me. So I'm going to start with uh, number five, Manhunter. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, there's just something that's I mean, I would love there. there's like a version of like of of Silence of the Lambs or not Silence of the Lambs, Red Dragon and Manhunter that I would love to Frankenstein. Maybe I think Manhunter or Red Dragon. Yeah, there are some good aspects of it. There there's are some really cool, terrible things. director. That's all. Oh, I mean, yeah, uh, I mean, uh, as if so facto. I mean, uh, <laughs> Manhunter is I mean, 
you gotta re- you know you gotta remember like Brian Cox originated Hannibal yeah. Lecter. Yep. And wow, does he do something different with it? But also completely creepy he's not so much like anthony hopkins hannibal lecter i love him but that's kind of a caricature of who that is and brian cox is doing like a dead serious character like let me out of the cell i'll bite your fucking neck off just watch you know just like really very dangerous you know and the style of manhunter is so stylish so cool Uh, and then to keep going with the 80s uh thief comes for me at number four so good and then i film and then i think i go mohicans okay and then the insider. Okay. And then Heat. There we go. Okay. Yeah. So we land. And I like all those movies. That's the thing. Yeah, like yeah. there's no there's not really I I mean, the keep isn't like that great of a movie, but it's not terrible. But there's no like, oh my God, what the hell was he thinking there movie? There are some are hit or miss. Like, nah, I think Heat and Insider and Mohicans are kind of universally loved. So he had a good nineties, but Otherwise, like there's something there are faults that people tend to bring up with the other ones. But I don't know. I just enjoy my time with them. I also think this is not a director with the exception of maybe the insider who's asking you, like, you need to take every movie I make as dead serious art. I think part of him, he is a genre director in some capacity, and he likes just like doing cool shit and doing gunshots and making shit blow up and stuff. I think there that is an aspect to him. So. He's very serious and he takes his movies seriously, but I, I don't know. I never, he's just not like, I don't, he's not Bergman or something. He's not like, you have to sit here and assess everything so, so deliberately. I don't know. It, I've never taken him. I've never put him on that mantle of like, I'm going to be studying these forever and ever. I just like to watch them because I think they're awesome. Does well, that I, make sense? Yeah, you know, it does. Yeah. And, I, and, and he doesn't strike me as that when, you, when he talks about his movies as well. Right, right. He does seem like he is someone who is very specific. Mm-hmm. Like that's very. Re, I think that's what really shines with all of his movies yeah. is like you are taken care of in a Michael Mann movie. Like he, he absolutely will be like everything that you're seeing is intentional Everything that you see has been thought out mm-hmm. over and over and over, and now we're executing it to the best that we could possibly have gotten it. I think that's what it really comes through with his movies. But I want to talk a little bit before we move on about the Pacino De Niro diner scene. Well, that was actually next on my little outline here. Perfect. Real, okay, real quick, though, just to talk just real quick to piggyback off of what you're saying. Yeah. A really good example of that is the first time De Niro and Amy Brenneman EDR meeting like at her house and you cut to them w- overlooking LA and it cuts oh. to those profile shots and it's very clearly green screen that they like did green screen yeah. on their profile and man says like there is it's great to look out over the city but on film for those profile shots it wasn't coming up and it was more important to me that you see those sea of lights out there than not so that's why they did it green screen a lot of people will be like oh that kind of scene looks out of place like it's 1995 green screen i get it but that was done for a reason. To your point, like it was thought about, it was considered, it was debated, and then he did it and he stuck with it. Well, and what I like about it too is like it 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 does you de- you definitely notice that. Yeah. But it also to me kind of feels like a dream. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And for these characters, that's kind of I mean we're talking like you know like love at first sight yeah. and like that percolating feeling. Yes. And I feel like the that look of that is sort of like accentuating that idea. Mm-hmm. So the diner scene. Oh boy, I I I I got a little beef with the diner scene only because if you fucking say they're not on screen at the same time, no, I'm not at all, my, okay. not at all. Okay. No, no, the scene itself is fantastic. Yeah, but no, this is a this is coming from the acting world. Okay, that scene is one of the scenes that is studied so much, and I think it's rightfully so. But my issue with it is that 
every time that this scene comes up in an acting class and people talk about it, they don't talk about the movie beforehand. Mm -hmm. They just talk about the scene as it is. So if you jump in on that scene without really having had like the previous, what, hour and something? Like hour and a half. It's almost at the exact midpoint of the movie. Yeah. And what we learn about these two guys when they meet for this it, it it's so loaded. Oh yeah. And, oh yeah. And you feel the weight. That's uh-huh. one thing that I love about this movie is that the weight that's being put on these two characters, but really every person in the movie. Oh yeah. The more weight keeps piling and piling and piling and piling, and that's what enhances the plot. Uh-huh. The plot moves forward so organically, but it's all due to the extra bit of pressure extra bit of time extra bit of weight extra bit of everything that's going on to all these characters so all that being said i just encourage anyone who's really studying that scene to not just study the scene so you don't have a beef with the scene you have a beef with some fucking acting class you took and you saw no it's not just one acting class it's 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 been kind of like in my experience whenever that scene comes up Everyone talks about that scene, and I'm like, yeah, sure, talk about that scene, but like, can we talk about what's led up to make that scene happen? Because yeah. that's why the scene is so good. Well, this is like the my probably biggest word I use on the podcast is context. Like, that's yeah. what you have to bring into everything. So, yeah, I mean, if you're just taking that huge scene without studying the outsides of it in the, pr- in the prior history, it definitely is not going to have that much weight in any context, acting class, anywhere, ever. Yep. So... What's really cool about that scene is obviously this has been talked about and studied so much, but he had, you know, those cameras set up and he was rolling three cameras at once. And he knew that he is not going to be able to use multiple coverage of different takes. So you're not like when we're on Al, that shot's from take five. Then we go back to Bob, that shot's from take eight. Uh, uh-uh. They were so in tune with each other's movements, speech patterns that man knew he could only use footage from one take from yeah. the same take. That is, and that's something I remember hearing that in his commentary, because Michael Mann is just one of the best, great directors, commentators. Oh my God, he does such, you will learn so much from watching one of his movies while he talks during it, including this one. And that was a really good lesson for me. And I've shot so many big scenes that way. So many of the argument scenes I've done, knowing that like, that you can't, it's kind of, it can be a betrayal of the actors because if they're really in tune with each other, you don't want to mix and match takes, at yeah. least in my opinion, not for every scene, but an argument like, like this, this, a long conversation. Yeah. And it really works. I don't, Michael Mann couldn't remember if it was like take eight or take 12. I remember hearing take 12, I believe, but that's whatever one they went with. That's what they went with. And it's just, oh my God, it's so cool. And then, yeah, like 10, 15 years later, this stupid rumor comes out that they didn't shoot it at the same time they weren't on set at the same day that's just like internet bullshit gossip it's so fucking stupid i hate going down i hate when like something inane and ridiculous that has nothing to do with anything that just like someone cooked up on reddit like gets traction and that becomes a thing people talk about about the movie it's like you know shut up just go watch the movie that what are you talking about And, and and one other thing that i love about that scene is the intro basically to it is that Pacino is in a fucking helicopter. Dude, he uses so many <laughs> LAPD resources yes. just like just to get you, around. I thought you had <laughs> you have so much surveillance on him and all of his crew. Can't you just like pick him up tomorrow? Like it, okay, it has to be now. Uh, okay, that's that's you, Hannah. Hannah's on a way, way, way different register than most everyone else. We'll talk about that. But yeah, like 
helicopter and then all right have a have a car meet me at like this ramp and then get the ramp and then you know he goes and chases him down like that's a, a gross use of lapd resources yeah. but it's also michael mann being like yeah i got a fucking helicopter for no this. that's yeah, exactly exa- what it is and, and i it, put al up there in it <laughs> and, and you get the fucking awesome moby song that's playing oh, it's like so it, good. it's such like you feel like he's going to do something yeah you don't know what he's gonna do he's going but he's, so fast he's going so fast he's hot rodding completely and he's also come this is what i love about the movie so much is like where he's come from is a scene with his wife yeah, like, that where are you going yeah like yeah. everything that's going on with these characters personal lives is what drives the next moment uh, certainly for hannah absolutely yeah yeah and 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 so whatever action they're going to take so basically he just got really full of himself and was like you know what fuck it i'm finding him right now yeah and I don't care where he is. Put me in the helicopter. Get that car ready for me. I'm finding this <laughs> asshole. And then he pulls up to him and just goes, I want a cup of coffee. I want a cup of coffee. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, and it's, it works. Yeah, it works. Oh, yeah. But I think that's really the, like the, uh, the, the, the biggest compliment that I have about this movie is that the, the way that we get to know the personal lives of these characters is so well folded into the plot that it never once feels like the movie is trying to do something else. Right. Like it's, it always organically makes so much sense and it feels like how natural the next movement would be. And it surprises you. Yeah. You're sort of like, wow, okay. They're really like going through like what she's saying is his wife is right. Yep. What's he going to do about it? And he carries it into the next scene. Yeah, it's 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 perfect. It's that's perfect. what kind of breaks the scene open is that he's like, my life's a disaster, you know. Yeah. And he kind of reveals, and Neil De Niro as Neil's like, oh, I think this dude's being truthful. Like, okay, now we're going here with it. It's not like surface level anymore, like barbecue and ball games and stuff. We're talking to like getting down and talking about dreams and fears and you know all that shit and that that kind of line of omission of you know my disaster zone her second marriage my third you know just all this oh god it's so so good and that's really the scene where you're like two are not that different like they're really not that different there's a and there's a really important thing that happens in that that when a career criminal says definitively i am never going back yeah like i'm not doing it so whatever the hell he went through in there and that's where he met like his crew you know it's where he met tom sizemore and val kilmer and his whole like gangster crew but the fact that he's made up his mind to never go back come death or whatever is really, really significant to yeah. Pacino, just to everything to tell you like where his code is at. And that's obviously something that greatly informs the ending. But I mean, we could talk, we could do a whole podcast on that scene. Literally. It's just, it's so good. It takes just as long as it needs to. Oh my God. It's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we'll never see each other again. But is this a good time brother. to get into <laughs> brother? You are going down. I thought we'd get into some fun scenes here, but in a lot of these scenes, we're going to try to go in order. We have Vincent Hanna acting um, completely fucking nuts yes. for a reason for reasons that in the film are never explained and no one else around him is. None of the other actors even knew this was going to happen. How do you feel? Do you know this revelation? Uh, hit it. Hit okay. <laughs> so the movie... In early drafts of the script, they took it all out. I don't know if they were ever going to have scenes for it. They took all this out. But basically, in like a 20-year anniversary Q&A, Pacino and Michael Mann finally admit that they conceived Vincent Hanna as someone basically doing key bumps to keep going. Key bumps and coke to keep going. That's what... And Michael Mann was like, we kind of uh, agreed that he was doing uh, like a lot. Like, you know, so... 
when in the morning before they go to like that junkyard, you know, give me all you got. Yeah. He is clearly carrying that. Like you, you talk a lot about what you're bringing into a yeah. scene. That dude, I don't know. He's with Michael T. Williamson. So maybe he didn't like bump it up in the car. But the, the, when he was alone that morning, he was bumping him up and taking it. And that's what he's taking into that scene. So when I heard that, I went, wow, that makes so much sense. I'm glad it's not in the movie. Yes. Then we get a little too bad Lieutenant Harvey Keitel, which is its own thing, a great movie, but that becomes its own thing. But just to know that it's like, hmm, that really does make sense that that's why he's able to go to, you know, BJ's on Alvarado to talk to Tone Loke at 2 a.m. And he's going here, he's going here because, you know, presumably like right before a scene starts with Vincent Hanna, I think it's kind of safe to assume that he had a little baggy and like before he pulled up to that, strip mall he did a little bump he did a few bumps and goes in there you know and get killed walking your doggy that's why he's yes. bringing that like crazy energy into a scene so just how do you feel about that <laughs> i think it's great and yeah. i think it's yeah. a great thing for an actor and a director to talk about because yes. it's one of those things where the audience is never going to know that they don't need to but if it helps inform the character right if it help informs the the progression of the scene it, it 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 just deepens and levels Pacino's attachment to what he's doing. Yeah. Then you're a director and actor who are on the same page. Like you know where we're going together. And by it's one of those little it, sometimes just tiny little details that you don't. I, I remember Quentin Tarantino and Leonardo DiCaprio talked about for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh -huh. that Rick Dalton probably suffers from some type of like, like bipolar. Yeah. Manic. Yeah. Before in 1969, those were not buzzwords people don't know what exactly. the hell that was yeah yeah and it's never brought up in the movie right but it, when you know that that's actually something that they together put into mm -hmm. the into the expression of the character's behavior you can actually see moments where yeah. it yeah. reaches those levels so you still have to read that fucking book because there are so many more added of that. details oh my god oh yeah. my it god. is a great novelization you have to read it it's I, so good it's it's coming it's coming and speaking of which sorry we're, we're get we're on tangent city now Michael Mann and that he's writing like a sequel prequel to Heat. It's yes. a novel that's coming out in August. Half of it is apparently a prequel and half of it is a sequel. So that I had a note here to mention that. But as we're talking about movie novelizations, I can't fucking wait for that. I don't know if he'll get the money to make it, but I'll be reading that like day one. Oh, yeah, that's going to be I amazing. Can't wait. But yes, yes. Like deciding something beforehand and bringing that in is a great way to inform character. It's a great way to keep the audience guessing like where the hell is this guy? Like, what page is he on? Michael Mann tells a funny story that it, Michael Mann, he is not the accredited cinematographer on his movies. Yeah. But he operates his own camera. So he is more often than not the person literally holding the camera when they shoot. And he was shooting that scene that give me all you got scene. And he couldn't keep the camera still because he would just start hysterically laughing. laughing. He had no idea Al was going to go there. And uh, every instance of that, you know, great ass. He had no idea oh, that was going to happen. That's my favorite Pacino moment. Oh, my God. Movie. Something about asses. <laughs> when I see a woman's ass, it does something to me. Roaches eye. I remember Vichino in an interview talking about how they agreed that this character of Hannah needed to be a little over the top, but not too much. They towed a line. Yeah. And Pacino, don't ask him to go up too big because it won't be a problem. Right. But there were times where Michael Mann would be like, all right, maybe a little bit lower, but that's where it lives. Right. And so you're just sort of towing that line and tracking how far it goes. And that's the pleasure of a good collaboration mm -hmm. is when you both know what you're doing and a director can be like, oh, a little bit too much. A little bit more, but right. you're 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 right there. That that's exactly right. And with De Niro's probably the opposite. Like, I okay, give me a little more, Bob. Like, maybe not that under here. Like, not that restrained. Give me, you know, give yeah. me. Why don't you come up a little bit? Yeah, yep. it's, you to temper them would be uh, difficult. Yeah, yeah. 
but I'm sure they, they're fucking pros. Like oh, they're, exactly. they're all after the same objective. Is yeah. that's that's get it right. So yes, yeah. So I love that. I and I think that's such a great thing to bring up too because it's it's a little clue into something that's not expressed in the movie, but when you know it. You can totally see it yes. now. Oh, absolutely. Moments. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's get into some of these scenes. Oh my God, I love them. One of the craziest things about Heat is that one of the best action sequences of all time begins in minute nine of this movie. It's fucking incredible. The armored car robbery. I mean, even down to the tiniest detail, like those ribbons falling at the car dealership. It's so precise, so brilliant. And in any other movie, this would be the best scene of the movie. Like yeah. any other, if, yeah. if they say this to the end, just with that glass, all the car, you know, car windshields blown out, which they actually did. There's nothing digital about that. You're like watching this. I mean, what a way to start a movie. But unfortunately, I think we're, we're too young. I can assume you didn't see this in theaters. No. I've never, I didn't see it in theaters. Apparently just the sound of like oh. their truck hitting the armored car and going over. And then when they do those explosive charges, it was like nuts and set this crazy tone for the movie that, I mean, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And it, you know, again, when I'm talking about like studying it and listening to these details, when you pay attention to the first time we meet uh, Ashley Judd and she's counting the money that Kilmer, her husband, has made from this robbery, she's like only eight grand. It's like he's like, yeah, I had to clear the bookies. And that's a detail of like you did all that and killed three guards on the street or were involved in the killing of three guards for eight thousand dollars. All of that fuck man you're in bad shape you know even de niro can't believe it he's like you don't have anything saved with everything we've been taking down he's like no super bowl clean me up <laughs> but uh, just a great detail of like degenerate gambler can't keep his shit straight but armored car robbery the military precision in which they are handling that is something i've always really appreciated they do act like a small military unit as opposed to you know guys who met in the yard at false yeah. prison it's like it, just the training the level of preparation, then you bring in this one asshole, Wayne Grove, they haven't worked with before. Oh boy. And he's like oh. kind of the driving force of all the conflict in the he, movie. Essentially. He's the driving force yeah, of the movie. He is. I mean, without him, he's the one who kicks up all the shit and gets everything going bad. And you know that he eludes them in the second diner scene and they don't get to kill him. And then it's, it's basically him and De Niro, like fucking with each other throughout the whole film that, you know, and in the end, De Niro, Neil McCauley has to make a very big decision. Does he go, hunt Wayne grow down or does he take his escape that like he has and he does not take his own advice he nope. doesn't bail when he spots the heat around the corner he goes in straight for the heat but yeah Wayne Wayne grow <laughs> by the way shout out to Jesse James for that that's his name right Kevin Gage Really played Wayne grow yeah Kevin Gage is that, is that Jesse James who the fuck is Jesse James Jesse James Jesse James like Sandra Bullock's ex-husband who's Jesse James isn't that who it is Who's Jesse James? Jesse James. I don't. You just. You have to explain it. You're just saying <laughs> he, the name over. He was and over. the guy. He was the guy in Blow. Who? Who? The the guy at the end when they're doing like the when when like they're making the um like the the the, the final score that ends up taking George Young away. Now I don't know. Uh, Kevin Gage is the actor's name who plays Wayne Grow. He unfortunately uh, served some time after Heat, and I guess Heat gave him a lot of clout like everyone just knew his name was Wayne Grow. he went in he was like growing weed or something i don't know he didn't like fucking you know rob an armored car but oh, he went man. in for a couple of years who oh. the hell is jesse james i guess i'm i guess i'm way off you're way off all right well anyways shout out to him yes yeah, shout out shout to, to kevin <laughs> gage kevin gage who kind of steals the movie with his you know uh neo-nazi fucking nihilistic 
brutality. His <laughs> eyes, man. His, yo, yeah, they're dead. That one scene the with the Reapers come to you with yeah. the prostitute. Yeah. Oh my god, dude! And, and the perfect oh. cut to him grabbing her to the bottle cap. Opening. Yes, perfect cut. That is why I'm here. Yeah, oh it's so like you talk about like a character that doesn't really he doesn't have like a lot of dialogue. He doesn't really have a lot of screen time. But right. everything that happens with this movie is because of this guy. Yep. And every time he's on the screen, it feels impactful. He's menacing. He's scary. He's off kilter. That's a very, very cool performance to watch because it's it's all done then for you. Yeah, really and good. he like the the second scene I wanted to talk about was that diner scene when they're all you know meeting up and he, everybody wants some pie and he's sitting yeah. there and, and you know Trails like I gotta go to the bathroom then he gets up and, but then so, Tom Sizemore like sits at the counter to you know and then just the way it's played it's like they've rehearsed this they've done this they've done and it and then uh, one of my favorite shots in the whole movie is when De Niro slams his head and Tom Sizemore does that crazy oh, like lean yep. to stare the guy down which is like. He learned that on the yard and everything in those eyes is what, what the fuck are you going to do about this? Come over yep. to this table and watch what happens. I'll kill you with my bare hands. And that's all communicated in a shot that lasts, I don't know, two and a half seconds, arguably one of my favorite shots or definitely acting moments of the movie, like a really extreme head tilt to be like, what's up? What? It, it's one of those things where like, you know, prison and the realities and the way that you have to live your life there. Mm -hmm. And when you bring that into the real world again, this is what you're met with. Because no one's going to do anything about that. Right. In prison, maybe. But in, in the real world, like, you can get that away with it if you carry yourself in the, well, not correct, but the way that you would carry yourself in that. And that's why no one makes a move. No. That guy he stares down goes back to his food. Yeah. Because no one wants to deal with it. No. But it's sort of like, nope, this is how we're going to handle this. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. It's, yeah, it's a greatly, it was a very effective scene. All right. I have something that I was watching this movie for this episode. I watched it twice because I watched it again with his commentary. And then just straight through. I uh, noticed something that I've never heard anyone talk about related to this movie. And I had to go back and rewind and make sure I was right. Let me uh, just sell something to you. I'm talking mm. about timelines here in the movie. The timing of the first 30 minutes of this film are a little weird. I want to know if you've ever noticed this. So De Niro tells Voight uh, at that parking garage that he will meet Kelso. That's Tom Noonan, the guy who's going to sell oh, him the bank robbery information. But he tells him, set the meeting up for tomorrow at 9 a.m. And De Niro and Voight are talking about this. It's already the sun is set over L.A. They're in a parking garage. So he says, tell 9 a.m. tomorrow. Then after that, so much shit in this movie happens. Pacino finds the armor car bodies. They try to kill Wayne Grow at that diner. De Niro goes home to the beach to stare out the window. <laughs> Kilmer and Ashley Judd fight. Pacino and his wife fight. De Niro goes to the bookstore, meets Edie at the coffee shop, goes back to Edie's house, sleeps with her, and then wakes up the next day. Have you ever tracked that all of that is happening in the same Dude. day? Because the next day, the first scene with De Niro is him meeting Kelso. Tom yeah. Newman. So I never put together that all of that shit is happening in one night because he's talking to Voight at night. The sun is set. So like all this shit is going on. He goes back. So he's in like downtown meeting with Voight. And then he goes and does this thing. He goes to the beach. And then I guess he just stares out the window at the beach and he's like i'll go to the fucking bookstore may as well like it's i always thought that beach when he goes home was like that was the end of a night but it's not this is yeah. all the same night 
it's like you know it's just it's a movie timeline thing but i really i never noticed that i've seen this movie dozens upon dozens of times and i never realized that all of that was happening in one night i just thought it was funny that's all it's a lot of shit like i think subconsciously i realized that because like one thing that i felt about this movie is like the way that the time works like I always did notice where it felt like the next day. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, like they don't necessarily, sometimes they do like this where they track it like verbally yeah. the days, but you do feel like time is moving day by day. Yes. Whatever we're seeing is all happening at the time that we're seeing it and right. it's moving into the next. But to have it track so specifically like that. Just in the first 30 minutes yeah. because it's, there's, it gets a little looser with its time, yes, it like does. when they're they're more investigating the bank. Yeah, it does get looser. But ju- the only way I clued into this, the only way is that he says, "Set the meeting up for tomorrow at yep. nine a.m." And I'm like, "Well, wait a minute. We I, that meeting's not going to happen for like a while because all this other in the movie because all this other shit has to happen. What the hell? That's all in one night. I never realized that. I you know, it's just it's just funny. That's all. But it, there's a very strict timeline." set up there but then it does loosen up but it's that's why i don't know i always want to be careful in movies it's it's a tough thing to talk about like tomorrows or yeah, stuff because yeah, you, yeah. you know you film movies out of order so it if they if they had not said 9 a.m tomorrow if you would just would have been like set the meeting up then yep. it loosens up the timeline and maybe it's a little more believable that like that's a few days and then the kelso meetings like you know three days from now not tomorrow just calling it out you know not not a fault of the movie at all i'm just i just had never noticed that before that's all well i tracked the the time from when pacino's like everything you got yeah because he's like you meet us at 2 a.m right and and, and Pacino makes a big deal of it's like whoa you want me to meet you there then it better be worth it so whatever happens throughout the rest of that day and then you get to 2 a.m and pacino is clearly keyed up ready to go and has that whole entire conversation with tone (laughs) loke shout out to tone loke but I think what also it does, too, is like it, it grounds you in the idea of this is the life that these guys live. Yeah. Time and where you have to be and when does not matter. You need to do whatever you need to do to get there. So sleep happens when it happens, yeah. if it happens. And I think that's just another thing about the way that these guys live that just like it 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 captivates you and brings you in more to that world. Right. So the weight of what these guys do matters even more just based on thinking about, God, when do they sleep? Right. Exactly. When yeah. do they sleep? We never see anyone like resting, nothing like that. Yep. No. Yeah. It's a great point there. I mean, Neil could definitely be a guy who's just like grabbing an hour here, doing an hour here. I don't know. The only time we see someone sleeping is Kilmer waking up on his floor. Yeah. After he fought, yep. Which is the next morning, you know, because De Niro comes back from sleeping with Edie. So yeah. what happened? When are you going to get some furniture? Oh, God. I and love I love it. also, too, just really quick side quest about this. So the first time that we meet Pacino, yeah. it, he, you know, he's making, he's, yeah, making, he's making love, making that love. Yep. And but that's like the only time that we ever see him in a place of. I mean, I guess for lack of a better term, but re- relaxed. Yeah, relaxed. Or intimate, at least yeah. doing something other than, than his, his job. job. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and I mean, it kind of speaks to a very, I suppose, like stereotypical masculine thing where it's like, well, if I'm not doing this, I'm doing this. Right. Right. You know, and I'm uh, that's sure, how she feels. And that's, that's, how, she, she's yep, that's like, how she feels. I think she even says like we, you know, we we just fuck and I'm trying to look for this, you know, connection. And then you just get up and leave. And yep. You withdraw again. That's not a marriage. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just love that when you look back at the movie, that's how we meet him. Right. And right. I think that's just a great touch. It is. It really is. Next scene that I want to talk about, I have always, I, the first time I watched this movie, I remember this, like as a kid sitting at home, and I was impressed by the armored car robbery, like very, whoa, this is crazy. 
But I was watching this movie going, this is going to be one of my favorite films. I know it in the scene where De Niro's crew sets up. Okay, yeah, we're going to we'll go here. There's there's directions over here. And, you know, and Pacino and the cops are all spying on him. And then Pacino and the cops come back. What are they looking at? What are they looking at? And when that clicks for Pacino, is this guy something or is he something? And then, you know, they're staring at us, the police yeah. department. And we cut to De Niro way the, way fuck, the fuck up, up there, there with that crazy lens. Okay, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. I, that, I had never seen something that it's kind of a simple thing. Like, yeah. you're pretending to be hunted and then the hunter becomes the hunted or vice versa. And I just remember being so impressed by that. And that little smile De Niro gives, he doesn't smile a lot in the no. movie. And he, he's kind of like impressed with Hannah and Hannah's impressed with Macaulay. And I just, I love that scene so, so much. The music like kicks up. So good. I love that. It, what are they staring at? And he just, you know, we get that under, under shot of Pacino and he's like, this guy something or is he something? And he's just so impressed. He's like, fuck, we got a good crew here. And leading up to that, like they, because they, De Niro and his, his squad have already decided that they're going to go forward with this robbery yeah. when they, they know that the heat's on them. Like they have a whole discussion. Like it's, it's hey, risky. yo, the fucking LAPD, where'd this heat come? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so when they all decide they're going to do it and they meet up, like I remember being kind of confused when they're talking about the exit strategies. Right. And, and I'm like, well, you know you're being watched. Why are like, you doing this? Why are you yeah. doing this? And then it's it's all done just to get the payoff yeah. of that shot right where De Niro's looking through the lens. Right. And you're like, wow, you fucking guys went out of your way to just lure these guys in yeah. for no other reason. Just to be able to like study him. He wants to know who's hunting him. And you know, he yep. sends his stuff to Voight, and that's when we get the whole breakdown of, you know, three marriages. <laughs> and, Oh my god, it's just so good, man. It's, it's so, so good. fucking good. There's like, like uh, if you're watching this movie, even if like action isn't your thing, I'm really hard pressed to find anyone who wouldn't be impressed by that. Like you, who's not gonna sit back and be like, oh fuck, that was pretty cool. Like, well, that, that was good. And again, every so if you're not into the action, you're gonna get wrapped up in these personal lives. And right. then when it it all of a sudden just so beautifully matches to what's plot-wise being given to you yeah. like this, you're just blown away. Yeah. You're like well, now Pacino's gonna have to come home after this day, right? What's he? What, what's she gonna say now? Like you're so in it. Oh God, it's so good. So we're, uh, I think we're there. Bank robbery. Mm. We do it. What do you have to say? Now oh, let's just blow past it. Actually, I don't yeah, I don't think we need it. to talk about That's it. That's all right. So the next scene is Jeremy Piven with his really interesting hairline. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Treating Val Kilmer bank robbery. Think the number one thing I always like to mention about this to everyone, and this is. Very widely talked about, but the amount of preparation that went into this, how good De Niro and Kilmer got with their guns. Yeah. It's been like shown in military training courses of how quickly Kilmer could reload. But the sound to bring it on back to the Oscars, oh. the sound of this, like they got down there and they shot it. They, sh they had to shoot this over several weekends because, you know, L.A. wouldn't let them shut down downtown L.A. during the weekday. So they get out there and they do it several weekends in a row and it's shot. It's all in the can. And Michael Mann watches the first cut of it. And he's like, what is up with the sound here? And the sound mixers were like, well, we can't, we couldn't, we definitely couldn't use the sound that you recorded on the day because it was like this horrendous like echo off the buildings. So we put in, you know, our movie gunshots and man's like, no, take the sound from the day, make it horrible at like heighten that, yeah. boom, that echo. That is why no gunshot in the history of movies has ever sounded like so this. Good. And we have seen, I've seen hundreds of movies that have shootouts in downtown settings where it would, 
boom, boom, you know, ricochet off everything yep. like that. And it would sound like if one gun, if one bullet is fired, it would sound like five because yeah. it's that echo is going to and you'd be able you and I know downtown. Well, you would be able to hear that on fucking, you know, Figaro and fifth all throughout downtown. It would just sound like this popping and be like, what the hell? So the fact that he made the decision to go in and use that, which like kind of violates the codes of sound and sound mixing because you're not creating a new sound. Maybe that's why I didn't get any Oscar nominations. I don't know. But that is that's honestly like the way they're handling themselves. The criminals, I mean, like, go, go. Just the staging of it all. You know, Kilmer's walking, he's smiling. Then he it, within a split second starts firing. That's the, the slow motion shot of the Nero in the car. And he starts firing out the window. All great. All great. All perfect. The sound is what gets me every fucking time. I agree. And I I think this is the most well done action scene of all time. Yeah, me too. Because I I had a note like, is this the best bank robbery of all time? It's not even a fair like question because no one in 1995, no one had seen anything like this because nothing like this had existed. And I can tell you as a lifelong movie lover, there's no shootout that matches this. There is not because they're actually like now some of it, we get good shootouts. Some of it's digital and like, you know, there's digital enhancements brought in i mean michael mann like every single bullet that hits a cop car they had already done that on the range and then yep. they like put squibs in those specific holes to blow them up it's it's incredible and i would rank it very any action scene involving guns this would be my favorite i mean there are some action scenes it's just like you know cool shit blown up like in speed or something but this is right up there with this is as good as action filmmaking gets. And th- I don't consider this an action film. I consider no. it like an epic crime thriller. And this is oh just an God. action sequence. And let's just break it down. Break like it down. the basics. Like when you watch an action scene, you kind of have to ask yourself, because sometimes you see a lot of really cool stuff. Like there's a really cool fight, really cool explosion. Well, exactly what you're saying. But are you actually tracking logistically what is happening? Yeah. In do your you mind? know where you are? Yeah. Yeah. And where the camera is at and where everyone else is in relationship to the environment and right. what's happening. And like, I think Saving Private Ryan does a really great job of that. Like, you know where you are, where you are watching on the beach, yeah. you know, yeah. these types of things. But these are things that I don't think necessarily one as an audience thinks about. It's a subconscious thing. I don't think people think about it consciously unless you're a hardcore movie. Yeah. Everyone can track it subconsciously. And that is what can make you not really like a scene or a yeah. movie as much because you may not have known. You may not know like, oh, I didn't really like that as much. And I might be able to be like, well, maybe that's let's say like Taken 3 or something. Everyone talks about there's yeah. like 50 cuts of him jumping over the fence. But a lot of action movies do that. They're that's cutting, cutting, exactly cutting. And I mean. you have no fucking clue where you are. Like Ambulance. I saw it. I saw it twice. I had fun with it. It's a... a ridiculous la movie that like you you kind of know where you are but sometimes you're like what the hell is going on here like where am i like huh this is does not make logistical sense you know where every single principal character is during that shootout and like you know oh that's why kilmer has to turn around to try to shoot pacino now he has to turn the other way to try to shoot the roadblock you just know and you also gather what their objective is yeah because when shit goes south Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden we're just okay so we are you just think in your head okay this has not gone their way. They're trapped. Right. Oh my God. They are literally shooting their way out. Like you're the the information simply is dawning on you as an audience as to how they, without talking, are getting themselves out of this problem. Right. And I think that's what makes the scene so good is that you're able to track exactly where everyone is. And because when you're watching an action scene, you're not necessarily thinking ahead right you're just watching this but this allows you to be like well 
I see what they're doing. If they can move up a little bit further, right, and then they've already taken this and they're just going back and forth, you're understanding something on on a certain like military level. Yeah, like, it, what you need to do here. This is how you do this. You're understanding it without them explaining it to you. you yes, get the yes. third or fourth time, one of them runs up and is you know doing that covering fire, and they they yell go. And yeah, then De Niro runs. You're like, oh, I get what they're doing. Okay, they didn't. They clearly talked about this beforehand, like, oh, and then Sizemore's little, you know, he's falling behind, like, oh, shit, I get that. You just get, like, they are stuck, but they know how to advance yep. forward toward the horror, like, toward the, the danger, and they're not afraid, and they're like, forward motion, find a car, forward motion, like, let's keep going, and yep. not afraid of just killing like i don't know 30 plus members of the lapd they gotta get out and they know how to use those guns so yes. well because that's something michael mann talks about he's like you know some people ask like if you're against 40 cops with pistols and maybe some of the cops like pacino's crew they all have really good weapons uh, pacino has like the best weapon kind of the strongest weapon like in the scene but those cops like at the roadblock they're mostly using pistols and stuff and michael mann is like three guys who are obsessed with like military structure and know how to use those automatic weapons they will not be afraid of that level of crew. And yep. you just go. You're not going to surrender. You're just going to keep firing because you know you have better weapons. You know you're probably better trained than they are oh, in terms sure. of military tactics. Yep. And you just advance and keep going. And, you know, maybe one tries to shield himself with a girl. Jesus. Maybe one gets takes a bull in the neck, but you got to keep going. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and Michael Mann talks about that, whereas like cops are not trained to handle that type of scenario. Well, that's a huge issue just in police force yeah. now yes like yes. You, you need to bring in the SWAT team exactly in order to, so, yeah yep so yeah. if you're talking about just regular police they are that's that's a big part of why these guys get out yeah exactly is because they're just like fuck this is wait we're in our overheads <laughs> yeah and then um in the commentary man makes a really good like when tom sizemore picks up that kid he's like this man you know michael is a sociopath he but he loves his children. He loves his family. He would protect his children. But he does not care about using your child to shield himself. Yeah. And you see that because he's like, he loves his wife. You hear that he like loves his kids and stuff. You know, you got enough put away. I don't think you should take this job. And I've always really, you know, appreciated that dynamic of it as well. There's just, there's so many little interesting layers to it. The lack of hesitation is something that's really, really startling. Just, you know, the, the truck passes and Kilmer sees him and has to shoot. And then I already mentioned it, but that slow motion of De Niro just shooting out of the window. Oh my God. Oh. But you really believe I, the, all the training that the, that the actors must have gone through. You really believe all that. And God, how they were really dedicated and how it all just fucking paid off. Yeah. Big time. Oh, God. I mean, we could talk. It's another scene we could talk about forever. Like I love so much that we're going parallel with Pacino as he runs and the wall is kind of getting smaller and smaller and he's running up. And then we see what he's going to. And that's when it, you know, reveals Tom Sizemore yeah. with the girl and he just readjusts his shoulder and then makes that shot and does the kill and just that whole thing. And then Pacino's first thing is not, is he down? It's let me get the girl and yep. let me get her. So that's, that's the difference. That's the separation. One will use one as a shield. And the other is like, you know, I, I honestly, probably not uh, the best shot for <laughs> Vincent Anna to take. You probably could have shot the fucking well, girl. That, well, see, I was just going to bring that yeah, up like that. Yeah. Like I think any other movie might have. There's an opportunity there to make a moment. Right. Bigger than it is. A little standoff. A yeah, little, that we've and, seen and a million like, times. Am I going to yeah. do this? But Al Pacino, he does not. He like that. No, no hesitation. hesitation. Like yep. he 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 sees the problem. Yeah. It's like, all right, well, I'm going to take my shot. 
right when he turns around and boom so so and i i really appreciate that because i think it's a very easy way out for a movie to kind of add like well what the reason why sizemore does grab the kid is to add that extra level of mm-hmm. like don't shoot me mm-hmm. you might shoot a kid but pacino doesn't even see it. he just sees an obstacle in the way not right. the emotional component of i might shoot a kid yeah but yes when he does get him down he does first go to the kid yeah. oh that's it i'm oh i i gotta bring this up bring it up um bring it back the, the scene where uh they find the prostitute dead yes and and pacino shows up on the crime scene and the mother shows up and she gets through the yeah. the, the tape and runs and then all pacino does is just grab her grab and hug her. her yeah man that's such a great scene it's really powerful because it there's nothing that can be said like right. there's a reason why pacino's like why like get her out of here but then when she crosses he realized that the only thing that he can do right now is just hold her. Right. Like, like, like there's a reason why they don't let people through here, no matter who you are. But once you cross that line, well, now you're here and there's only one thing I can do. And that's just to like, hold you and console you that way. Which is yes. Uh, Which is exactly what he does to his wife. As soon as he, he sets down Natalie Portman on that bed, is she on drugs? No. And he's like, you know, she needs this, this, this. And he knows that the wife is right behind him, but he's like, he's got to talk to the doctor and he just, immediately turns and grabs her and yep. like hugs and she's like you know horrified so he does know when to like give that level of care and yeah stuff. but i still god i love that scene too i mean we're still we're talking about scenes we're just cruising but he gets the page of like we, we found neil like we found him we found yeah. call and you can see him sitting there like oh god the only thing i want to do is get out of here and yeah. she kind of senses that and she's like go like yeah your uh stepdaughter almost died by suicide in your hotel room but I get it, man. You got to go get your man. He yep. just rushes down those stairs. Oh, God, it's and, perfect. And I think that's even like why, like when those moments of compassion do come from him, they're from the job. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, the, what, what everything that drives him is from the job. So when he is able to be there for someone, it's it's it, it, it links back to the job. Right. And I think that's such a great tool. But uh, Natalie Portman, mm-hmm. um, this is just a personal thing, but I really loved this little character that she has is because like the way that she views the father that is constantly lettering her down right is was, that was me as a kid yeah really looking up and, to him yep, yeah and just yeah. being so heartbroken right, right i mean i never tried to commit suicide because of it thankfully well, thankfully but, yes but i understood that and it's a very tiny component to this movie mm-hmm. of just there is a kid that is in an emotional place because she is constantly being let down by her father figure that she doesn't have. I just related to that, and I thought it was just very well performed by her yeah. for being a such like a C-plot yeah. of a very right. plot-driven movie, but you feel the weight of it, and I really appreciated that even that was treated with such care by Michael Mann. Yeah, and also to continue that care, Vincent Hanna really seems annoyed. Like, what, does yes. this guy have any yes. fucking idea what he's... Yep. He really does. And it's very smart to never show us the dad and give yeah, them, I like, agree. a little... Like, it could easily... I mean, she could easily, like, have slept with the ex-husband instead of Ralph. Or, you know, something like that. Something, like, gimmicky and stupid. Yeah. And Pacino and the ex have it out. You know, something stupid oh, yeah. like that. That's no good. But he genuinely seems like, is he going to show or is he going to, you know, yeah. fucking bail like last time? And I love that. That I he, he does care about... 
her and maybe you know maybe that is why she chose his hotel to go to like all that i stuff. think so 100 yeah. yeah and and yeah and you're right because that's such a great choice to make for a guy that is so wrapped up in this right i think it's actually maybe even easier for him to emotionally connect more to that probably than it is his wife yeah because yeah. he sees the problem well he can help natalie he Portman. Can fix. he can fix yes he, he can't the wife is trying to fix you pal she wants yep. more connection she doesn't she might need a little fixing too. She's not perfect. Let's yeah, be clear. Yeah, yeah. But Natalie Portman is a kid who can who has very tangible issues that a cop or just a grown mature man can help fix. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And good I call. love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's all there. I love the insanely fast U-turn he does like pick her up in the street. He's like, <laughs> hi, sweetie. Like, is everything and I could I just love that. Like, fucking turn. Why is she sitting there? Go turn around and get her. Yeah. <laughs> Where is this fucking asshole? Dad didn't show up. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh god, it's so good. So let's move on to the, at the like the core of this movie. You know, the robberies happen. Everything's everything's in motion. But he Neil does have this escape set up by his fence, played perfectly by John Voight. And he has this escape to get out. But there's this one thing that he's asked for. Like, if you can find Wangro, you got to let me know. So then, yeah. like, you know, De Niro, Amy Brenneman, they're on their way to LAX to get their safe passage out. And I love Voight calls me. He's like, yeah, so I got to tell you, he's staying here, here, here. So that's like. The biggest, I would argue, what if question of the movie, because that he clearly is breaking his own code there. Like he knows damn well that he has an insurmountable amount of heat on him more than he's ever had in his life. Basically, the question I'm posing to you is, do you go back? Do you like this guy that has fucked up everything for your score? He's effectively gotten one of your friends killed times Tom Sizemore. He's taken Chris Val Kilmer out of commission. Do you go to that hotel to enact revenge or do you let it go? I think Neil has to go back, but it's just like it's an interesting thing to talk about and discuss because that you see him really committing to like, should I do it? Should I do it? And he makes the exit late. And he's like, yeah, we have time. We're fine. We got time. Well, but he has to cook up like this whole thing, like dress up as a security guard, pretend to, you know, pull the fire alarm, like do all this shit. It takes time. Let's talk about this, brother. <laughs> and uh, I, I just want to point out something that speaks to also the the specificity of Michael Mann. Working in a hotel for 10 years, mm-hmm. the way that De Niro kind of walks in and uses the phone to find out the room number. It's so like casual, like well, order to BLT. Yeah, like we got an order right here, but the room number was mixed up. Like, like what's room? what room am I going to to find that out? Because And, they, and they're like, oh, that happens all the time. And he's like, yeah, no. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. exactly. I can't tell you how many times that that's exactly what I did right. as a right. room server. And, and they also, the hotels really do have all of your like wardrobe mm-hmm. is there. So he just walked into the exact right place to find the wardrobe to put himself in, use one of the many phones that hotels have to communicate with the front desk. Because you also, as the front desk, when you get a call from that phone, you're not at all thinking that, oh, someone's not supposed to be calling from here. Right. Like if that's right. an outside line, but if it's coming from internally, then it, it just, it's, it's, that's exactly how you would have done that. And that's how this movie, just keeping up with its own language everything is exactly how that would play out. So I really appreciated that. Absolutely. You know who plays the uh, cop in Blow that you're referencing? Kevin fucking Gage. Who the hell's Jesse James? Who's Jesse James? I don't know. I thought, I What's thought your there was an actor named Jesse time? James. What's your favorite movie of all time? I, I, <laughs> What's your favorite movie of all time? Let's not get into it. All right. I, I thought, I, for whatever reason, Kevin Gage? I thought this dude's name was Jesse James. Jesse and James was a notorious uh, robber. I know who Jesse American. James, Jesse James was, oh, okay. but I thought was there was an actor. By the coward yeah, robber. Yeah, by Casey Affleck. Yeah. I saw the movie. Yeah. So did I. 
But I thought there was an actor named Jesse James. Well, there very well could be, but I I was like, well, what are you talking anyway? I don't know where I got it. I don't know where I got it. But for some reason, I thought for years that that actor's name was Jesse James. So we got really one major set piece left, and that is this big LAX standoff when this is when, you know, he's coming out of the hotel. Wayne Grow has been killed effectively, and he spots Edie in the car, and he that's when he has to make the decision. Like, Pacino's running down, so what do I do? And he walks away from Edie, you know, runs away, and we get this amazing foot chase that, like, What's so cool about it and what man Pacino and De Niro talked about a lot was I want to because the end of this movie, the end scene was what man thought of first. And he built a whole film around it because he wanted to make an end sequence that the audience is rooting for both people equally. Because I I don't necessarily want both to die. I kind of understand that, you know, this is in the Greek tragedy aspect of it. One of these guys has to die. Yeah. And. The way it plays out, I'm glad how it plays out. It makes sense. But yeah. when they're running and hiding, I'm at the point where I'm like, I'm not going to be mad if like he caps Pacino in the knee and takes his gun and then just runs off and he and De Niro gets to live. But then Pacino just has like a knee injury or something. I'm not going to be mad at that. So you are really like, you know, encouraging both of them to win equally almost. And it, it's so that dichotomy is so effective with us because and then when it lands of. Okay, the the quote unquote good guy that who's chipping cocaine <laughs> gets his man and makes the shot. It you're like, okay, that is probably the way this should go. And I feel good about it. And you get that fantastic Moby song, and then you know they the holding hands. I'm I told you I'm never going back. As perfect as movie endings get, in my opinion. But I just I love that that you you are effectively rooting for both people. Well, you're you're really rooting for. I mean, I think naturally you're rooting for Pacino because that I think is the protagonistic angle that sure, the movie sure. takes. Yeah, but you can't help it along the way because we haven't really talked. We've talked a lot about De Niro, but we haven't really talked about that arc. Uh-huh. And you are really following both of these guys, and you really do care for De Niro. You care for you. You want him to break out of that shootout. You want him to find happiness. And like when that tunnel happens, when everything, there's a moment, right? Because we just talked about it, but to really sum it up, like there's a moment where John Boy tells him everything's good. Everything's good. But you're not going to take out Wayne Grow, right? Like that would be stupid. Yeah, you're he's not- like, he's like, yeah, so I got to tell you, but like you're, you're home free, brother. Like yeah. you're home free. Yep. yep. And, and they, it's on the nose, but they go underneath that tunnel where there's a big bluish white light oh, that so lets good. you know freedom. Yep. Like you've got everything you want. You got the girl, you got this, you feel that breath of fresh air and then they come out of it and you see De Niro's face and when you know he makes that decision, yeah. you go, no, come on, don't man. do it, yeah. man. Like, so right then and there, that's, I think, De Niro's characters, the achievement of what Michael Mann and everyone set out to do yeah. was because if you have that gasp mm-hmm. of being like, no, don't do that, you've won. Yeah, because so, you are, in, in essence, you're rooting for him in some capacity. Yep. You're rooting you for him rooting and for you're him. disappointed when he makes that decision and, to enact revenge. And yeah. there's like what I noticed in that end scene where they're on the LAX and they like they're going through those like, I mean, I don't even know what you call them. They're those like, like little satellite block yeah, tower. I don't yeah, know. Either, whatever they are. The great airport though. shit. Oh, yeah. But it's the only time that I noticed. And maybe this is just me personally, the way I received it. But. De Niro looks a little scared. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he like, does. He, he's yep. not handling 
the the environment yeah the way he normally would out of his element he's just got a pistol he doesn't have any of his yep. crew with him the, he's it's a new environment the crazy light shows yeah. that are coming from the plane from the runway yeah and yeah. and you look at him and he is frazzled mm-hmm. and it's and and you're like oh god i think we know like if you've never seen the movie i think we know where this is heading well, that's what i mean like sure. the, the tragedy aspect but of, yeah, yeah but yeah. that's what i loved about it is like they let that in like mm-hmm. it'd be very easy for de niro to play it straight right to the end yeah, yeah. like i'm gonna get him i'm gonna get my man but he's got me boxing uh fuck it i'm gonna take but he's scared yeah he is he it's, is it's a great great touch it is and good call good call because not something a lot of people talk about i'm glad we've gotten to talk about pacino and de niro a lot but but i know i want to bring no up, we got to bring like, up some people yeah some people like these are this is a stacked cast of some of the greatest character actors just ever i want to start with the women actually like amy brenneman is Edie, ashley judd <laughs> charlene Schlaris, i love her diane venora who actually played russell crowe's wife in the yes. insider so she's a big stage actress i i wish i we would have seen more of her because she's just so good so different as the wives of these men in both yep. different movies like i honestly didn't know i saw the insider like became fell in love with the insider and it was like viewing five or six when i realized that was the same woman and i went oh my god like yeah. i didn't totally different haircuts just all oh, all that stuff you got kim staunton as lillian i'm gonna talk a little bit more about her natalie portman is yeah. lauren they're all so good i i never hear anyone talking about kim staunton and she or really the dennis Haysbert thing and i know i touched on it earlier oh, we gotta talk about dennis we have to because first time i saw the movie i'm like who is this guy who is this guy i love this man so much i get him so much like he went in you know he went in but now he's out on parole and uh, you know he deserves his chance and he just gets stuck with this boss from hell do you know who that boss is Oh yeah, that's Bud Court. Bud Court, yeah, Harold from Harold Dude, and Bond. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and he's he was uncredited in the role, and he is. I know exactly who that dude is yep. like what are you waiting for you know like 25 percent gets kicked back to me just such a dick and the whole time you're watching it like what is the relevance of yep. this guy like you know he, he gets a little drunk and like why, why do you care about me and i really believe her that she like loves him and wants to give him this chance and then boom we're in the diner day of the robbery and the wade de niro tracks him he's like do you, you notice a grill man kilmer takes off the shades no and he's like it's the guy on the yard and then when they see each other when he goes and introduces himself to Haysburg, and he's like neil hey man and the way he plays that didn't you know because the nero right away five minutes like yes or no right now yep and you know Haysburg, he's not cooking the food he just leans back and he's like man you know what? cool and fuck it yeah let's go like that is and then that's like really the first big tragedy of the movie is that he's the first to die yeah and well, just like sitting there i think driving. it's the biggest tragedy yeah actually. You're, i mean and then seeing kim staunton's face when she realizes when she's watching the news coverage and oh my god it's so devastating but this guy you really want to win like he's got the boss from hell Michael Mann's doing everything to like for us to get to like him and like empathize with him and get it. And then boom, first taken out. It's like it's devastating, but a perfect character arc. It's a perfect character. And it's it's a very novelistic type thing to do. We are already so deep into the plot of this movie when we first meet Dennis Haysburg. It's like 40 minutes in after that very complex packed day that I mentioned. Yeah. And and it's a device that like I know like I always think of wait when you used it for this where we're already in the movie. Why are we meeting this guy? New person. Yeah. And but what he's going to end up meaning to the plot. Mm -hmm. So it's basically when you look at you, you work backwards, I think, as like the writer is sort of like, all right, well, we want to get one guy in here to do this. How can we work backwards to find an organic way of making a payoff? Right. That 
it, it's included with the plot, but it's also meaningful. And I love it. I think it's such a great way to do it. And this is a, a, an example of that that's perfect because the weight of Dennis Haysbert's character yeah. and then his death is like, oh, fuck, man, if you just didn't say yes. Right. So we're rooting the, for you. Right, exactly. So if the movie's two hours and 10 minutes, it's tighter, it's leaner. But we're if the movie's two hours and 10 minutes, we are meeting Haysbert for the first time, day of the robbery. Yeah. And Neil's looking at him and going like, do you recognize that guy? And you're like, and as an audience, you're like, oh, that kind of that came together kind of conveniently. But the way from minute 40 that he is establishing yes. this guy is in this diner, like here he is. This is his setup. And it makes sense that like you meet at a diner before a big score like that. That makes sense. To yep. me. It makes sense that like it they are having coffee there and he just happens to be work there because he's put in that work to set it up. And that's why the movie needs to be 250, at yep. least to me. That's why I've never had a problem with length ever. And one thing I want to bring up to the to the women of this movie, please, is that like if you look at it, it, it does meet, I think, some of the stereotypes of like all of these women characters that are in this movie are basically they're serving their male counterparts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is very true. And I feel like today, like we would have a little bit more going on there. But what I do want to bring out about all of these women is that all of them represent a different type of reality mm -hmm. to this like you've got the wife of pacino who is so strong oh yeah and so like she knows what she wants and she's fighting for it right you get val kilmer ashley judd val kilmer's uh wife who's it, totally on board with the lifestyle yeah. like uh, you need to like take like, down more scores stop the gambling you know watch your son so she's like Totally accepting of the fact that this is what my yep. husband does for a living. We, yeah. we may not be getting as much as, as, as one would like from these female stories or yeah. these characters, Fair. but they are so represented so well by the performances mm -hmm. that like, that's what we mean. And then we get Amy Brenneman. We talked about earlier. She's just lonely. Yeah. Like yeah. there's a reason why all of these women are with these guys mm -hmm. and the struggle that they're going through yeah. themselves and dealing with it. I think the end scene with Ashley Judd when oh she's God, with the, the cop, the hand movement, the hand movement, uh. because she has clearly set herself. She knows like for the sake of her kid, yep. she needs yep. to get away from this. But she loves this guy. She their, does. their love is so toxic in a way that's so kind of like beautiful and you're rooting for Kilmer. Of like, course, when, you want him to get away. Yeah. When you see, when you see that the smile on his face when he sees her, when he yeah. sees her, because his whole entire motivation is her. That's it. That's it. And and you know, and the, the sun kid. rises and, the and sets. And yeah. the kid. Yeah. And when she waves it away and he gets it, that's such a fucking Michael Mann thing to do—a simple uh, hand movement, yep. which is fucking perfect. And we all know exactly what it means. Yes. Like, yes. And have they come up with that ahead of time, 100%. or does she just know, like? That like criminal gangster code shit. If I just do that, he'll know it's off. And then that whole disappointment in his yes, face, like, oh, it fuck, just I gotta, sinks. I gotta go. Yeah. And, and he just like looks to like whatever's going on around him, makes right. up a, a like a realistic thing. And I love that he gets away. Yeah, they, they he check fucking his like, gets away. It, some people have called that out as like BS. I don't really know I, if it's BS I for nineteen ninety five. Honestly, yeah, like fake yeah. IDs changed. I mean, maybe, but you know, he get, I, God, I hope that character shows up in the book, like the sequel he part has of the book. To. He has to. Yeah. Yeah, he has, he to. has to. Oh my god, I can't. He wait. got away. He's yeah. one of the only ones. Like when you look at who survived this, it's him. It's him. Yeah, where did he go? <laughs> where did he go? I love that idea. Oh, so do I. Speaking of, okay, so speaking of the crew, that was the next batch of actors I had to list. We got Val Kilmer, Tom Sizemore, Danny Trejo, John Voight, Tom Noonan, and Dennis Haysbert. I, I know. God, I um, we talked about the time Tom Sizemore tilt that nothing better than that. 
John Voight, let's give a little few seconds of John Voight here. John Voight was in like good shape when they made this movie. Yeah. He was a good looking dude who didn't have like those, you know, like liver spots on his forehead or that hair <laughs> or anything. He, he was, I mean, his career peak Anaconda was the following year. You know, it doesn't, that's the best movie he's ever been in the best performance. <laughs> you want to get a snack? Oh, we got a oh, snack. Dude, you Still no Mateo. Yeah. <laughs> but they made him up to look like famed criminal robber Eddie Bunker, who mm-hmm. wrote perhaps in terms of Michael Mann, the definitive text, No Be So Fierce, about false prison, prison life. Most of us, most movie fans, know Eddie Bunker. He was a technical advisor for Heat, but he also played Mr. Blue in Reservoir Dogs. Yep. And, you know, there's been movies, like, based on his life, Straight Time, starring Dustin Hoffman. So they made him up to look like that. And it's just, it's a great character part, because John Voight, like I mentioned, career peak Anaconda, like, starring role. <laughs> and this is, like, he's the, I don't know, like, eighth, ninth, tenth lead. Yep. And everything he does is perfect. I love the way he just looks at him. He's like, what happened out there? The yeah. engineer's like, don't ask. They have such a good relationship and every career criminal needs that fence they need the person who has like the sergeant inside the lapd giving information that's the guy who knows how to flip everything how to flip whatever it is the diamonds the cash the bear bonds he knows how to flip it and he's the guy that provides you your out your escape and he plays that i mean perfectly he's he's if if you really think about it he's got the plot armor yeah, like, yeah. like it's it's sure, one of those ones sure. where like when everything needs to be cleared, you yeah. need whatever you need. Right. You don't right. ever question that that character is just what can make that happen. Yeah. And you don't ever really think about it more than that. But that's exactly what it is. But do you know who was originally supposed to play that? No, I've heard a lot of casting what ifs just listening to those rewatchable episodes too. Well, apparently from the interview that I heard from John Voight is that Nick Nolte was actually playing that oh. like he was cast. But he was not in good shape okay. in terms of, you know, his stuff, his yeah. stuff. It's, yeah. So they brought in John Voight and I, and John Voight was like, why do you like why you picked me? You already have this. And he goes, well, I get to work with you now. Right. Right. But uh, Nolte would have had to play that really restrained. And like yeah. he wouldn't it wouldn't allow he couldn't have been tough guy. I I love Nolte. I, I love almost every Nolte role, but I don't. I like Void in it a lot. I a wonder, lot. I wonder how much Nolte's throughout their... fucking huge too. Like he's such an intimidating figure. Like they would have had to really like age him and not make him. He to me he would have looked. Nolte could have looked like more of a guy who should be on like his actual crew. Yeah, not his fence. Yeah. Maybe. the weather at like that time. yeah the weathered look. I mean yeah Nolte like ninety five, but the weathered look of Void, who again was like at his career peak the next year in Anaconda. But I'm just saying like <laughs> I really love what they did with him and what he did with it. I do too. I wonder how many times in both of their careers the, I feel like those two are constantly like being matched. Well, I mean, they started around the same time. You know, they're both yeah. hitting in like 60s or late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. How many roles Nolte wanted that went to John Boyd? Right. Could. I, yeah. I mean, every actor's got that one guy that's sort of right. like, oh, he's, uh, it's, it's always him. Market correct. That's what Bill Simmons says. That one, an actor can like market correct another and kind of take, do that, like take their roles and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it can happen. There's a funny story where, um, where Bruce Dern uh, was for Nebraska. Yeah. And he was talking about how, uh, like why he accepted this role. And he's like, well, the other reason I took it is because I'll be goddamn if another Jimmy Conroll is going to come his way and take it from me. <laughs> That's fucking great. Uh, Jimmy Conroll, I love him. What a, what a nut. Um, Tom Noonan, uh, yeah. memorable, terrifying as Francis Dollarhide in Manhunter, Michael Mann's Manhunter, a, a great performance. And then, you know, like 10 years, nine years later, he just shows up in one scene, like yeah. shaved, massive beard, wheelchair for no reason. You know, it just I just catch it. It just flies in there and I just catch it. That's all. And I love when he makes the sale when 
De Niro contemplates and he's like, you're on. And the first thing he says is congratulations. Like, you know, he's like, I sold you this thing. Like, congratulations. I'm glad you have this. I just, I love, it's all that. Like, why, why the wheelchair? Mm-hmm. Why the shaved head? Why the massive beard? Why, why, why? I don't know. Even though I'm questioning it, I'm not questioning it from a place of like judgment. I'm like, I don't know why you did that, but I totally believe all of it. Yep. Like, okay, wheelchair. Cool. Check. Oh, I love Tom Noonan. I love Tom Noonan. He's so good. He's great. Uh, there's also one other person. I don't know if you're going to mention him. Who? William Fickner. No, I am mentioning him. He's I'm doing it kind of in a I was doing it kind of in I'm grouping them. So I all just right, did the crew right. and then Wait. I was going to do the cops. I was going to do Michael T. Williamson, Wes Study, Ted Levine, who were great, you know, as the cops. Apparently, Ted Levine was either offered the part of Wayne Grow, but he didn't want to take it because he played Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs and didn't want to be like, you know, oh, well, wouldn't she a great big fat person? You know, she <laughs> So he, did, he didn't want to do that and follow it up. And I, lo- I mean, he has such a great voice, you know. Meet him on Figueroa and Fifth. We're going to have to block him off. I love him. I love Ted. Oh, my God. He's been around God. forever. Um, okay, and then I had, yeah, the villains. We have Kevin Gage. Jesus. Never known as Jesse James, as Wayne Grow. We have Hank Azaria. And then we hit the end of this one. <laughs> Henry Rollins. Hen- yeah. Oh, yeah. he's great. Tone Loke. Uh, T- Tone Loke's jacket, by the way, steals focus from that scene. Oh, yeah, it does. I lo- <laughs> Tone Loke, just the whole energy. You got to imagine, like, he was, uh, you know, he's in hip-hop at the time, making music, and, like, you get to be in a scene with, like, one of the best actors ever, and he doesn't bring any fear into it it's just such so much confidence uh but then yeah of course the great van zant william fickner like oh i love him you know talking to an empty telephone oh my god that's dead man on the other end of this line i mean i love talking about uh like character arcs just starting with so it's you know we're on the streets you can steal my stuff and get away with it i'm gonna kill him so then like a few of his scenes later he's like unshaven Got the you know he's pillow on in the his couch. Office. I've been living here day and night. How well do you know him? Oh, took down some major scores together. That's <laughs> oh god. I love. I really love the way he plays the phone call when De Niro when the um you know after the abandoned movie theater drive-in after the abandoned drive-in scene and they go you know De Niro and his crew go to the restaurant and they call Figner and Figner's just like uh, I I sent someone I haven't heard anything back like what what happened and he's like yeah I fucking get it and that's you know I'm talking to an empty yep. telephone just the way. Fickner decides to double down on like, oh, no, is, is everything all right? Like, yeah, even the yeah. way he like kind of breathlessly like airs it out. Oh, God. I, yeah. Great performance. I, I mean, we're huge Fickner fans. He's like, I best. love him. Armageddon, yeah. like literally can make a grown man cry in Armageddon. Yeah. Just like, can I, you know, shake the hand of the what is it? Can I the bravest I, man I, I've ever known? <laughs> sh- no, but he's like, shake the hand of the daughter Honor. of the bravest man I've ever known. And you're like, God damn, man, where the hell did that come from? This is a Michael Bay movie. Like, you're crushing it. Make me cry here at the end. Dude, Armageddon makes me cry every I time I watch Armageddon. it. I love Armageddon. Oh, my God. Oh my I God. love you, Harry. <laughs> I love ben, it. Ben Affleck and Bruce Willis just gave it to me when he's giving that whole speech at the end of it to Liv Tyler. Right, right. We win, Gracie. <laughs> <laughs> Hank Azaria had no idea that Pacino was going to do the great ass oh. thing. And he, you hear the actor Hank Azaria go, Jesus. And that was him saying it. That wasn't his character. He yeah. Was like, and, you know, everyone's like, oh, my God, he's great in it it's just in his few scenes. Definitely plays like a Las Vegas scumbag so well. Oh, yeah. Azaria is great at character work because he's, he's so good at voices yep. that he'll throw a believable voice on it and just like embody this like, oh, I never should have gotten caught up with this broad. Yeah. Like, I believe it. And I love Michael T. Williamson. Like, you better get in there and sit down. Yeah. <laughs> right in his face. But um, act anyone else? Actors? Who's Ralph at the end? Ralph is Xander Berkeley. 
who we all love from any number of films, Terminator 2, you know, get in the house, come on, clean up your room. (laughs) Yeah, he's just great. And he plays that so well, just completely terrified of like, what the hell is this maniac cop doing? I don't even know. He he definitely doesn't know that she's married. And he's like, what the fuck? And it's this cop and he's acting crazy. Yeah, plays it so well. I love he's like, sit down, Ralph. Sit down, (laughs) Ralph. Sit down. You you can fuck my wife, but I'm taking my TV. (laughs) I had to demean myself with Ralph just to get closure with you. Yeah, I know. Ralph, the poor fucking guy, he was just sitting there like, what the hell is going on? He's like, I just had sex, but now I'm worried that he's going to beat my ass. But then you just be like, can I leave? Yeah, can I just get Ralph? Sit down. Oh, my God. It's so good. Sit down. Fucking lunatic cop. Uh, final thoughts heat legacy what do we have i think this is still uh, you know we set it up top i think this is one of the i don't know if a better like crime thriller epic american-based movie like has ever been made if not this is this will always be for the rest of our lifetimes this will be a top five movie for what it is like top five however you want to label it bank robbery movie heist movie you know crime thriller however you want to label it it's just it's that good it deserves all the clout, all the recognition it has gotten. And I am so thrilled just that it has, it's really gotten more popular with age. Like Mm -hmm. more people are discovering it. This is a movie that like even younger generations who are not the biggest movie watchers necessarily, when they are catching this, I there, everyone just likes it. It's a cool fucking movie that has stood the test of time. It doesn't feel dated despite that. No, not at all. Miles away. You know, we're so, so many advances, technology, all that doesn't feel dated. It just, it works. It still works. And I love it. And I'm so glad we were able to do this long ass deep dive on it. And there's one thing that I wanted to say that I completely forgot, but I, we have not talked about it. I mean, we have by way of the overall magnificence of the movie, but the writing. Yeah. Yeah. The fucking writing of this movie is astounding. That's like, what happens when you spend like 17 years yep. writing something, making shit based on the content and then making it again. That's what happens. Yeah. The, I mean, not just the progression of the plot. There are just certain lines that are said by characters that are just said so well and at the exact right time that uh, the character should say it that you're like there were a few times where I almost wanted to pause and just right. take in. I go, what a line! Yeah, and I mean, and, I, and I'm not necessarily one of those people that just view good writing as whenever there's a movie that just got a bunch of really good like lines, dialogue. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But there are, I, I think it's all just met with the 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 stakes. Yeah, like when the opportunity presents itself for there to be a line this good, put it in and say it. Like there's so many good lines in here. Well, and I'm gonna point out one that's going to seem a little unusual but if you are if you are a fan of thief his first movie with james con you may notice that james con's character rarely talks with contractions so he doesn't say i can't i'm not gonna do that i can't do that it's i am not going to do that i cannot do that so that's a very that's something that is very popular in prisons because you don't Mm. want anyone to misunderstand you and like spelling out every word like that to be absolutely clear that's a very big like thing in prison and that's why wayne grows like that is why i am here yeah you know he's like i'm a man i'm a cowboy looking for work that is why i'm here he could have been like that's why i'm here you know but he doesn't and that's all like it may seem like kind of this throwaway line but even man is putting so much into that is why i am here there's so much research or someone so many interviews he's done yeah and when you get an actor like jesse james he can just make that writing fly christ what's your favorite movie again the assassination of Justin. <laughs> is it? <No. laughs> 
Oh, we did it. Heat. We've arrived at what are you watching? I mean, we could the, Heat's a movie. It's another one you could talk about forever. I watched this movie once we decided on it. I watched it three times in like a week and a half just for this. Never bored once. Again, we are yeah. we encourage commentaries a lot on this podcast. If you want to venture into it, I promise, promise you are going to learn so much more than you thought possible if you listen to Michael Mann talk about this. Michael and it never his commentaries never get stale. He's a top five for me. It's like Spike Lee. David Fincher, Steven Soderbergh, I'm going to miss a few, Michael Mann, but th- there are some that just deliver the information in a way that isn't stale, isn't boring, so highly recommend that. Michael Mann is a guy who likes to tinker with his films, not all of them, but he tinkers with some along the way, and there's been a few versions of this, like the definitive director's cut Blu-ray that came out a few years ago. He mostly made enhancements to like sound, but the commentary should be available on any DVD or Blu-ray release of this. A lot of people own this movie. Just throw it on one day. That's all I'm saying. Yep. This movie, I mean, I mean, obviously, if you listened to this and you haven't seen it, we've spoiled it. But if you go back <laughs> and watch it, and even just for everyone who has seen it, like this movie is three hours. But once you start it, it does not let you go. No, it cooks. It, it, it cooks. It, it, you are invested the whole entire time. And I think that that's such a testament to a good movie is yeah. when it starts and you don't ever once feel like this has gone on too long. Right. What are we doing here? There's never a stale moment. We've discussed a lot of movies on this podcast and like done some deep dive episodes on challenging movies, like movies that aren't necessarily that accessible. And, you know, you have to it can be like hard sells for people. Mikey and Nikki. OK, Malcolm and Marie can be a hard sell for people. He <sighs> yes, is not I a hard can. sell. No, Heat's it's like not. just go put this on. Yep. I, I have two people in my life who are dear, dear friends. And this is their favorite movie of all time. Like, period. Yep. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. No, th- there are certain movies that are just like undeniable. Like they're, mm-hmm. they're like if you don't like this movie, something is wrong with you. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't I would go that far. But I think there's something in this movie for damn near everyone to take away. That's all. Yes. Yes. So we're going to move on to what are you watching? It's dealer's choice. You're going to go first. Of course, I always go first. You don't always go first. I always I do, go first. I make a very concerted effort to try to split it up as best I can. All right, I'm going to go first. I'm going to fucking go first because you know what? You're going to go first because I told you to. I'm a man, and I make my own calls, and okay. I'm going first. I'm double the worst trouble you ever met. That's I'm, in a deleted I'm, scene, I'm, actually. I'm, I'm double I, the worst trouble you've ever met. That's good. That's, from, that's a deleted scene when he's um, berating Jeremy Piven. He's like, the, their scene goes on longer. Oh. And he, so he says something like, you're not going to tell, tell anybody about this. I'm double the worst trouble you ever met. And that's actually in the trailer, though. So it's one of those oh, like, that's fun cool. lines from the trailer that they cut out of the final movie, but... Yeah, I was trying to give you a heat line there. Oh, you did. Sorry, man. Last thing I want to do is let you down. <sighs> All right. So, um, I mean, I'm doubling down here. I'm going with a Michael Mann movie. So am I. Um, okay, perfect. I wonder if we're going to go with the same one. I don't know. Oh, man. Well, I'm one of us go... has seen all of them. The other hasn't. Oh, Jesus Christ. Here we go. <laughs> um, oh, I know which one you're going to pick. Okay. Uh, so, no, I am going to um, recommend The Insider. So am I. Yes! So am I. I, I got it written right it. here. This right here. The Insider. Uh, uh, uh. This only happened twice. And Twice, we two did times. Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise. Christopher that's right. McDonald. That's like episode seven. We both picked Thelma and Louise. That's crazy. This yep. has only happened twice. You have the insider. You have the Double insider. Down. Tell me why you're doing it. So the insider was one of those movies that, again, like it was, I said it earlier in the pod, like I've seen Michael Mann movies at a very young age, mm-hmm. but I remember watching the insider and I remember just even thinking I was enjoying it. I yeah. was, I was hooked. I was invested. Right. But there was a part of me that was like, 
man, when I'm older, I think this movie's going to be way better, too. Yeah, yeah. Like, there was just something about the slow burn. Mm-hmm. There was something about the specificity of everything. But what I really gathered was that the stakes were really high yeah. for these characters. Right. And um, life on the line, jobs, marriages. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and all just kind of wrapped around the idea of cigarettes. Like, yeah. that's just kind of basically like, the you know, it. Yeah. But um, I, I really, really felt like there was something going on there that I wasn't ready for, but I deeply appreciated. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of recommending this movie is, uh, again, for me to go back and rewatch. But yeah, there like there's something about them. There's something that's living in that movie. Well, it's a very I do think it's his most mature, his most like deadly serious. But it's still being made by the guy who knows how to make heat. Yeah. So it's very technically savvy. It's some of the shots he's doing in it are like nuts. The close ups again, he's operating his own camera. A little bit of trivia for that. You know, the scene when he like opens his mailbox and he sees the bullet sitting there. Yeah. And that like takes place like in the suburbs. Michael Mann did not like the lighting through the mailbox. So they like went to the fucking beach just to get the ocean reflecting the light. And there's like a behind the scenes picture of them just shooting the mailbox. And that's it. That's crazy. He's, I mean, he's a lunatic. Like he's, a, he's got to get perfect lighting that no one but him is ever going to notice. But, you know, it's a truly great movie about a true story, basically about a whistleblower of the tobacco industry. Jeff, Jeffrey Wigand, played by Russell Crowe. Played amazingly yeah. by Russell Crowe. It's my favorite Crowe performance. It always really? has been. Favorite oh, yeah. One? Oh, yeah. Wow. He's, I mean honestly quite easily like it's i i absolutely love him gain the weight american audiences did not have a relationship with him yet yeah we knew la confidential but he's sharing that with guy pierce and kevin spacey to me like yeah i love him in that i love him that's in that. my but, favorite one yeah i, I mean yeah. I, I i cannot argue with that but like the way he owns the insider and just going toe-to-toe with pacino who's playing 60 minutes producer producer lowell bergman christopher Plummer is great as mike wallace gina gershon is great in this yeah. movie as like a cbs executive I love it. And the Pacino, he has, you know, those few flip outs like the Wall Street Journal, not exactly a bastion of anti capitalist sentiment. <laughs> it's just <laughs> fucking crazy. Um, I'm so glad we both picked this one. This is a movie he made after he released in 1999. Uh, probably the most nominated film Oscar wise for Michael, a Michael Mann movie. Didn't win any. Some would argue that Russell Crowe should have won actor against Kevin Spacey. You know, who knows? I also kind of love the fact that like three lifelong dedicated smokers like Pacino Crow and Michael Mann like make this anti-smoking movie I don't know just hilarious but <laughs> irony yeah cannot recommend Insider highly enough obviously we cannot recommend Heat widely enough so so that's it oh my god that was so much fun as always everyone thank you mm, find it I haven't messed up in a long time no, well, at the end it's debatable oh god obviously we <laughs> recommend The Insider very highly we recommend Heat full endorsement so as always, thank you for listening and happy watching. Spot the heat around the corner. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. Send us mailbag questions at what are you watching podcast at gmail.com. Or find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. In addition to Heat, there were a ton of all-timer movies released in 1995. And next time, we're going to talk about our favorite films that came out in that incredible year. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.